Now, if you say to a patient that you are overloading the system, and as a result of that overloading of the system, your something has to give. It may be your TMJ, or it may be your it may be your tooth. That also increases the patient's perception of the issue. I.e., it's not the ownership of the problem isn't the dentist needs to put a crown on this tooth for me before it cracks. The ownership of the problem is now shared amongst yourself being yourself being the dentist, the patient uh, as well, because they have to realize that- Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello everyone, long time no speak. There was no episode in July because I became a father. I am now father of a very beautiful, gorgeous, healthy baby boy. Uh, we haven't named him yet, so that's sort of the reason why I was a bit busy and occupied uh, in the month of July. And uh, our guest today, Ozolani, also recently became a father, so congratulations are due to him. We've got a jam-packed episode today with Ozolani. He's a restorative specialist, and we're discussing restorability. Very key topic, obviously, in our day-to-day practices. I sound very nasal because at the time of recording I was a bit poorly so apologies for that uh, and there's no outro today but all the stuff that I that we discuss uh, any links that I promised uh, will be on my website jazz.dental or on my Facebook page uh, protrusive dental podcast please follow it for little gems and tips that you know from the podcast and elsewhere I share on the page so please like that However, I will give you a protrusive dental pearl and the PDP for today is uh, on the theme of restorability is to use an Iwansen gauge. This is a little gauge that you know jewelers use and obviously we as dentists use to measure the thicknesses of things. These things could be cusps. So you're looking for about three millimeters of, of, of cusp thickness or if it's less than that, then you may consider to overlay that cusp, for example. Uh, I use it quite a bit to measure the thickness of burrs and also for lab work that comes, comes back. Are my crowns thick enough in the occlusal aspect? Uh, are my resin bonded bridges wings, are they thick enough? Quite commonly, labs make them thin. But obviously we know that they need to be at least 0.7 millimeters thick. So it's, it's good to, to measure that. It costs less than six pounds on Amazon. I'll drop a link. So, uh, you know, it's a easy thing to purchase. It's something that every restorative dentist should have. So um, I won't uh, babble on anymore. Enjoy this episode with Oz. Uh, the sort of things that we discussed are all in the description of this episode. It's quite a bit. It's a very broad topic, restorability. So it, it, it sort of was, um, it could have gone in any direction. And I'm glad it went the way it did. It's uh, quite fundamental with a few sort of uh, alternative therapies discussed as well. So um, I look forward to the next. I've got great episodes lined up already pre-recorded so i'll read some hopefully this month thank you very much and enjoy okay right oz thanks so much for agreeing to come on to protrusive dental podcast really good to have you so can you please uh, tell our listeners out there a little bit about yourself yeah so um i'm currently a consultant restorative dentistry at king's and i'm basically full-time i qualified in 2003 uh, from king's as well See, people from king's they they tend to stay at king's don't they stay within the m25 no actually but i left kings <laughs> essentially i left london I, i'm a london exile um i, I, okay. I left london for like eight years i went to wales for a while and then i went up to newcastle okay. and i came and then i went to canada for a bit and then i came back to, to london oh that's really cool so were you practicing in canada i was practicing yeah i mean it was it's very interesting from a point of aspect of dentistry because th- their system is much more generous shall we say when it comes to dentistry um and it's funded entirely differently so i work four days a week um largely managing patients through diagnostic clinics and uh, patients that i see on mdt clinics as well um and on fridays i teach on an operative diploma well, i'm a course lead for an operative diploma um, which is basically a combination of seminar-based mm-hmm. teaching workshops uh, phantom head teaching and clinical teaching, chairside teaching in the second year. Um, and that's that takes up a lot of my time as well, I suppose. Um, and that's essentially targeted for GDPs who are UK-based and going through, you know, things like treatment planning, occlusal factors, um, you know, managing the endodontically treated tooth and all of those sorts of things. So uh, it's been up and running now for two and a half years. Uh, and, I, well, I'm hoping it's going to be successful. It's one of those things that I've started that I'd, I'd like to see uh, blossom essentially. Awesome. And so today we're talking about restorability. 
Yes. Which is a, a huge topic uh, and uh, it's, it's something that is subjective to a degree. Mm, very subjective, yeah. What I'd like to learn is um, how you teach on your diploma and how you, Oz Alani, thinks about restorability and which factors you take into consideration. I mean, I think subjectivity of, uh, you know, restorability, the upward pressures on dentists now in the UK from our patients, uh, you know, patients now are less reluctant to lose teeth, however, however restored they are. I think obviously the downward pressure comes from things like litigation, the GDC, uh, I think we're becoming more and more squeezed and trying to push the boat out for teeth uh, to try and, and essentially do some heroic dentistry to try and save them. The fees in question. So when you're in hospital, there's no fees involved and you just go by, OK, give me whatever you think is best. Do you think that's that could be a big factor? If we're talking more generically, I mean, regardless of being hospital based or otherwise, patients are more informed because through mm. Google and the digital age, you know, uh, I was having a discussion with my DCT recently and we were talking about textbooks and, you know, a lot of learning now is accessed through Google. And if you imagine that you may Google something um, and your patient has the same ability, the same accessibility to that information as you do, because they can Google the same things that may be on the letter or, or phrases that you may say during months more demanding as a result of that why can't you save it why can't you um you know do a call why can't you all those sorts of aspects make things a bit more difficult um or not difficult but at least it will affect our decision making because we have to empower patients with information and knowledge you know the amount of dentine remaining for example uh you know the endodontic factors the periodontal factors that may play a role in successfully restoring a tooth mm -hmm. Um, I think for patients, they need to not grasp what they feel is right. They need to grasp what we feel is most beneficial to them because every patient doesn't want to lose a tooth. But on, on balance, we need to look at uh, the restorability of a tooth fairly objectively mm -hmm. in that we have to balance these multiple factors, factors, tooth factors, occlusal factors in providing something that's predictable to the patient because anything can be restored. I mean, anything yep. can be restored. But it doesn't mean it should be. <laughs> doesn't mean it should be. And also the length of time that it's going to be restored also is something very important um, because mm -hmm. patients want to know, is this going to last me five years? And I'm sure, as you say, in private practice, patients would like to have an, to hang a number on the amount that they are investing in. Um, and But you get those patients who, you know, again, talking about subjectivity, there are patients who may have had one uh, bout of uh, periodont apical periodontitis in their you know dental lifetime as it were and they even though the tooth may be quite restorable they're keen on having just the tooth removed because of their experiences yes that's an eminently restorable tooth you know it's got caries it's reached the pulp but it's eminently restorable whereas we have the mm -hmm. other patients where you've had repeated restorations you've had repeated post-core restorations and they just want to keep that tooth for as long as they can so yeah, where, where you come from, what you've experienced obviously has a, a big bearing on the, the patient psyche and psychology and decision making. Um, yes. well, one thing I want to uh, ask based on what you just said then, implants obviously have grown massively over the last uh, you know 30 years, let's say, uh, especially in the last 10-15. Uh, mm -hmm. But do you think, do you agree with me that perhaps in the last five years that when a, a debatable tooth comes that instead of jumping straight for the implant, we're going back a little bit back into heroic dentistry to try and get some more years out of the implant? Uh, out of the tooth even patients aware that implants aren't the panacea they are not the cure for every dental problem you know uh, i remember maybe 20 years ago when uh you know implants first really became very popular and the perception of it was that why would you why would you throw the kitchen sink at a tooth to try and save it when you could have it removed, maybe have an immediate implant and have it restored within three or four months. What has been the real, you know, the test, the, the real test of any dental treatment is time. And once you have, you know, teeth that develop perimplantitis, uh, we've seen this last 20 years or so, the option of maybe replacing the implant or indeed managing the perimplantitis is quite daunting. Renaissance of, you know, more traditional uh, conventional techniques to restore teeth with limited extracranial tooth tissue, such as the post-core. Uh, or such as maybe looking at yep. root canal retreating a tooth and 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 establishing mm -hmm. um, you know a, a good coronal seal. 
I think to look at a tooth that may be unrestorable or, or at least questionable restorability in somebody who's 20 mm -hmm. or 25, um, if you were to engage in providing an implant at that age, you know, it's conceivable over the next, you know, it's likely that generations are going to become centurions and reach the age of 100, that that implant will have problems over the course of time and indeed will become obsolete. Remember, is the implants... You know, we've seen things on social media where we go, well, what implant is this? And, mm. oh, that's quite dated. I don't recognize that. And the design looks quite funky from this 80s or yeah. 90s. But teeth don't generally become obsolete. Timeless. They don't. They're very timeless, our teeth. You know, if you look at a situation where, if we're looking at the salient differences between, you know, teeth and implants, the key factor, and I know we'll probably get into this yeah. a bit more later on, is that teeth have periodontal ligament. They have this gel capsule that can really do wonderful things in that it can manage occlusal loading um, and uh, essentially react to various different factors, whereas implants don't have, do not have that ability. They are very uh, basic in that respect. You know, implants have become very popular, you know, but they are only, re they only should be really uh, provided in situations where we have uh, you know, good oral hygiene um, and all of those other factors going for us, or at least we can modify those factors before we engage in that. But I mean, commonly, you know, if we have a patient who, who is a young patient who I feel may not be ready for uh, implant treatment uh, and has an apical lesion, that I feel that the tooth is of questionable restorability, mm -hmm. then, you know, the explanation normally, the explanation or the uh, or the discussion that we have with the patient is that, I mean, you have an apical lesion on this tooth. It's got questionable restorability. We need to modify things to, to essentially make things more amenable to an implant in the future for you. And that may take the form of maybe root canal treatment uh, and getting some apical regression of that lesion before we even discuss that. And that also obviously buys us time. Uh, and it gives the patient a bit of a, um, it gives you time to assess, you know, the patient's perception of treatment. You know, patients that come in, commonly come in, May say may feel implants are the perfect restoration, or as I said earlier, the solution to all the problems. It's not always it's not always really that way, or it's not always it, it doesn't always pan out like that. Unfortunately, yeah, that's a very regular conversation I'm having with my patients uh, when we're deciding whether to save a tooth or not. And a lot of patients come in through maybe external marketing that implants are just uh, a replacement of teeth, whereas you know, as we know, implants are not a re replacement for teeth; they're a replacement for a gap. So um, it reminds me of when I was a fourth-year dental student. I was sat with, uh, do you know Raj Patel? Okay, Raj Patel based in Sheffield, restorative consultant. Oh yes, yes, I know. Very, I know yeah, Ron. very charismatic, funny guy. I, I won't say anything. Perhaps uh, if you're a student, you know, he can be quite <laughs> scary sometimes being on consultant clinics with him. But you know, it was a great experience at the time. And I remember going around the circle with students, and we were trying to sort of uh, discuss uh, what we know about implants. And I said what I feel now was the stupidest thing ever. Uh, and I said implants last forever. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We worked so hard on this Protrusive team and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. And Raj Patel, uh, God bless his soul, he shot me down so hard that I'll never forget the beating that I had, the verbal beating that I had from that day. Uh, and that, that was, uh, you know, that was a perception of a fourth year dentist student that, hang on, don't implants last forever. That was a fourth year dentist student. The public must definitely feel that. I think implants are—they are essentially a metal bolt where you have a highly of, compared to a highly evolved tooth with dentine, periodontal ligament, um, and essentially, you know, the romantic in us should, as dentists, should be aiming to maintain teeth for as long as possible. Not to the point of being ignorant about a tooth not being savable, because you know that would we'd be doing our patients a disservice. But we, you know, looking at an armamentarium where we can. Uh, keep teeth for as long as we can i think as i, as I said you know things are going to come around full circle 
um, and patients are probably going to perceive that as well. That you know, patients where um, teeth can be saved, we can upskill um, and gain extra skills in trying to push the boat out for teeth for as long as we can, whilst also informing our patients of those factors as well. Which is, I think, is the key now, because you know, if an, if a patient is informed, if you spend so for, let's just say for example, you've got you're looking at you're looking at a long cone periapical and the distal margin is quite deep uh, and it's close to the alveolus. Very common scenario that we see in in practice. Yep. And you perceive that as a, a challenge. Your time may be better served as opposed to really sweating over a tooth and trying to get a good margin on the impression for an extra ten minutes. It may be that you spend that extra ten minutes explaining to the patient that. Unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to get the optimal margin here for these reasons. Then the expectation is managed. You know, your outcome uh, under promising and over delivering. There is a you know, that's a great little anecdote, really, for us in in, in twenty nineteen. Absolutely, and, and and no more so than the challenging prognosis case. Absolutely. So I think you know, changing our way in which we approach, uh, you know, informing our patients and managing, uh, you know, the heavily broken down tooth. I think will evolve also in that. I find it very useful to, to you know, draw the bite wing or draw the periopical that the patient can see, but actually draw draw it out and say, this is the root, this tooth. Can you see that your hole is so close? And and it just makes it, and I get that scanned in as part of the notes. So it's, you know, medical legally all very valid and uh, that's, you know, well yes. so that's a, a nice little communication thing that my patients find quite useful. Uh, and, and, and they sort of remember that, uh, you know, my tooth is knackered and then it brings the expectations down. So if you just jump right in and say, where do we draw the line? Can you tell me where you draw the line? Now, for example, uh, one thing I think about, well, the first thing I think about when it comes to restorability, the word is almost synonymous with ferrule. So for me, the first thing I look at is, has the tooth, for example, got a uh, ferrule of at least 1.52 millimeters, basically. Um, is, is that your starting point? Uh, obviously, oral hygiene, perio factors, but can mm. you comment on, 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 on the structural integrity yeah, of teeth? I mean, uh, so there's been a lot of work on this, as you can imagine. And, you know, we know that a two millimeter ferrule is, is required and that we want to brace the tooth together. And essentially, the ferrule not only allow, gives you an opportunity to, you know, bond to tooth tissue circumferentially, but it also allows the tooth to be loaded. Um, you know, the tooth and the uh, core restoration, loaded, uh, you know, together as opposed to maybe wedging or at least levering against the tooth. Um, mm -hmm. So that that you know the ferrule is is very important. You know, there's been work at the Eastman um, uh, looking at various different factors associated with restorability. There's quite been quite a few indices. Do you use them? Do you use these indices? I just wanted to, to know in your practice. I don't know. I, I mean, again, I feel that because it's so subjective, it's so uh, many factors. Because, yeah, I think a lot of these indices, unfortunately. Um, they can't they can't really factor in the patient expectation but it also it's very difficult for them to factor in the occlusal factors for example uh, you can't yeah. factor in the patient's oral hygiene you can't factor in various different things essentially we need to look at the tooth as a unit to just mm -hmm. what the, what tooth tissue is remaining above the gum because again volumetrically yep, yep. that can be quite difficult so for example um, you know alvin mcdonald's work at the eastman subsequent to a number of really good MSCs. Um, so uh, Bobby Bandlish did a really good MSC in 2000 that looked at, uh, you know, the amount of tooth tissue remaining in root canal treated teeth that required exocrine restoration. Uh, and the, the work by Alvin McDonald looked at splitting the tooth up into six sextants and measuring the amount of tooth tissue remaining. Um, volumetrically, if you just, you know, and it's common now where we mm. have one wall that is virtually intact, and the other one, be it the buckle or the palatal, be it the pre, pre, up, you know, classic premolar buckley or palatal, um, you have a, a, a massive amount of tissue on one side and not the other. You know, volumetric. That that yep. volume ideally should, would have been better served being distributed more evenly amongst mm -hmm. the two. Mm -hmm. So it's very, you know, we don't get those situations in some of those indices where you have a donut a conferential that's quite predictable. Uh, the real uh, mm -hmm. uh, point where we start to scratch our heads is when we're missing so much on one side and we are we are virtually intact on the other, yeah. be it buckle or lingual. So let's, let's make it tangible. Let's say um, a, a case I had actually about eight months ago or so, uh, a lower right first molar, it has about a half a millimetre of ferrule, uh, ferrule supra-gingival, so there may be some sub-gingival tissue as well, buckley, so half a mil 
buccally, uh, about a millimeter mm. mesial and distal. And then lingually, we have the entire uh-huh. lingual wall intact. All other factors being favorable, what will be the restoration of choice? Imagine, let's say, we are going to restore this tooth because in, in a certain in another mouth, we may choose not to. Uh, and in a different mouth, we may, we may choose to. You know, what would you suggest would be a suitable way to restore such a tooth? Or, or do you think that it's not even worth going there because the, the factors are so variable? And, and I respect that if that's the case. Endodontically treated or not, Jazz? Not treated, not endodontically treated not treated so vital um and i mean in so what we're looking at more often now actually is the enamel status of the tooth because you know there's this whole there's quite a lot of conjecture about conventional preparations versus adhesive preparations so uh, you know if you have you know a circumferential enamel ring that may bode well to providing a sort of adhesive restoration that may be quite neat in its design um in that sort of situation um, you know, if you were to go, you know, conventional in that sort of situation and you've got lack of tissue, buccally, measly, distally, you know, if you prep that lingual wall, you're not going to have much left as far as yep, I can imagine. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Um, so in that sort of respect, you know, the onlay now has gone through, you know, an, an evolution, as it were, because, you know, it has the, the, the onlay on a molar tooth now really has made there are numerous advantages of having an omelet over a conventional restoration you know you can visualize the margin uh you can you know you can control your moisture control instead of being deep into a cervical region you know if the if the if the margin is subproducible uh your bonding and your cementation process is going to be a lot more predictable they are a lot harder to prepare than your conventional crown mm-hmm. um because you have to you know no two onlays are the same essentially because it's the margin of an onlay is very much um, dependent or indeed dictated by what the tooth is giving you to start with. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Whereas if you were to, you know, if you were to go through Schillingberg and you were to look at that sort of preparation, every one of those, essentially, if you were doing your job and you were on the money, you every molar that you would prepare would look exactly like that book. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the onlay preparation, which conserves tooth tissue, uh, you know, no two preparations are going to be the same. Uh, and, you know, I think that sort of aspect when you've, you know, you've described that sort of situation lends itself to an onlay. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of gold onlays. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's my, that can be my go-to for certain situations um, when it comes to molar teeth that are heavily broken down. So certainly that's what uh, one thing I considered. So uh, an onlay was uh, definitely on the list. Uh, the uh, other way that uh, I asked one of our good, good colleagues, uh, Mahal Patel, I sent him the WhatsApp photo at the time. And the, uh, the other alternative we suggested uh, was uh, a uh, to elective RCT uh, and do the uh, split post technique, a cast, uh, and then to restore it uh-huh. conventionally. So that could yeah. have been, you know, an- another way, uh, a lot of work involved there, but definitely a very valid way to do it as well. Uh, the patient ended up choosing, due to, to fees and other work she was having done, is a massive composite. And then the day that breaks, she's having the tooth out. Again, I mean, if we go back to, you know, electively root canal treating, oh, I think what's important is that we know what factors, what, what advantages the pulp uh, provides us with, you know, a vital pulp provides us with, you know, there is quite a lot of evidence. Some of it is quite dated now to show teeth with pulps are, uh, are physiologically more um, able to manage loading, i.e. the pain threshold is such that there's less likelihood for them to fracture than maybe a non-vital tooth because they may, uh, you know, the proprioceptive nature of the tooth is, is able to manage, you know, sudden loading a lot more easier. Um, I think, you know, obviously gaining what you gain by loss of vitality in that sort of situation is you gain, you know, a core that you may feel is more predictable. You're going to be uh, you're you're going to be gaining uh, resistance, well, not resistance and retention, but you're going to be gaining uh, greater surface contact of your restoration through the pulp chamber. And, you know, she went for the composite and, you know, she's probably been she's probably been well informed by yourself as to what the factors are going to be. Um, I think, you know, for yourself, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that tooth over time. Um, And I'd like you to tell me what happens, actually, because it sounds quite interesting. 
to see how Absolutely. it pans so, out. So far, uh, eight, eight months, uh, no issues, but I, I expect it will just, um, the lingual wall will break off uh, eventually and then she's going to uh, have that tooth out. And that was you know, very much, I've walked her through it and she wasn't keen on spending uh, uh, best. It's coming into implant territory and we had that, you know, full on discussion with the drawing and everything and uh, that's what she felt was best for her and to be fair, I completely get that. Uh, and then we got to help our patients and, and be non-judgmental. I mean, you know, why did she have, why did the buccal wall fracture? That's the other question we must ask ourselves because we yeah. can't make the same mistake twice. You know, if she, if, if the buccal fra wall fractured as a result of occlusal factors and, you know, we don't look at cuspal coverage as, as something that we require in these heavily broken down mm -hmm. teeth, then we're making the same mm -hmm. mistakes again. I think that's also quite key is we don't, we tend to look at a tooth in isolation. Whereas there are going to be multiple factors that that part, play a part in why a tooth has become unrestorable, or you know, essentially making it more difficult for us to provide a restoration that's very predictable. You were just talking about now is that all the endodontic studies about uh, root, root filled molars like to break. I actually tell my patients that uh, for, for for molars that are root filled are extensive. For example, losing a marginal ridge, obviously explain it in, explain it in patient friendly terms. But I say it's six times more likely to fracture. I, I, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, that's from Ray and Trope 1995 study. Uh, but I, I like to give my patients sort of evidence uh, based sort of, you know, it's six times, you know, you're an individual, but according to the studies, a molar is, uh, you know, with a loss of marginal ridge is six times more likely to fracture with a root canal. And that helps them to, to rationalize, you know, why exactly we tell them to have uh, something. Because once the root canal is done, they think, oh, isn't my tooth fixed yet? Yeah, I think for patients is, you know, putting, you know, putting value back into investing in a tooth, you know, a molar tooth, um, you know, uh, you know, a well obturated, well restored tooth is, is very extremely valuable to us as dentists, and it's communicating to them. So, you know, for your pay for our patients, it, it shouldn't really be just a root canal treatment. You know, the package should be restoration also. And it, you can argue mm -hmm. that the quality of the coronal restoration is more important than the actual root canal treatment itself. Literature that's intimated that, yep. you know, the coronal restoration is the most important, one of the most important factors, not only for the fact of keeping the bugs out of the root canal system, but essentially protecting what is now a weakened structure. Castle protection, yeah, yeah. Castle protection, because essentially now the more you know as you you know we're using loops more often now and we're seeing things that we've never seen before when we look down, you know, down a pulp chamber you know where maybe 20 years ago uh, we may have not been using the most elaborate magnification techniques we're seeing cracks in teeth that are inevitably going to affect our, di our diagnosis prognosis of teeth you know the other factor also is that when we've had those those cases where we don't know what's wrong you know the root canal treatment has been optimal uh, and you take a cone beam CT and you discover a fracture, uh, you know, and that happened to my nurse mm -hmm. recently where she had root canal treatment done by some really expert endodontists. And uh, essentially the outcome, we and she had a CBCT taken, um, and I wrote this up as a, as a sort of, a, you know, a editorial, uh, and it subsequently, uh, we only actually found out what the problem was when, when the tooth was on the end of a set of forceps, unfortunately, and there was a fracture all the way up the palatal root, which wasn't really picked up on CBCT. So again, you know, we're, we're looking at sealing, but we're also looking at protecting the remaining tooth tissue. And, you know, inevitably, uh, there is a finite amount of tooth tissue that we need to achieve both of those aims. I, I hate cracks. I think all, as restorative dentists and, uh, you know, GDPs and everyone in dentistry, endodontists, you name it, cracks are a huge, uh, have a huge bearing on restorability because the, the mere presence of a, of a hairline crack just, you know, turns your restorability right upside down. Before, because the next question I'll ask you is about cracks and how you manage them. But uh, I just want to mention one more point about the ferrule, which I think uh, I probably learned about three, four years ago and, and learned to appreciate. And I think it'd be good for listeners to hear it is when I look at a ferrule, I don't just look at the height of the wall, but I look at the ferrule horizontally as well. How much thickness, so that, that sort of ferrule is important as well for, for, for bracing and giving uh, uh, strength for your future sort of restoration. If you've got a, something with a less of a horizontal uh, ferrule, then there's more flex in the dentine. Um, anything that you, what you can add to that? Yeah, so I mean, if we're looking at some longitudinal work, um, so the uh, the uh, at the Eastman, their uh, survival rate for their median survival rate, I think it's median, maybe mean, I can't remember off the top of my head, for post-core restoration is approximately 15 years. Um, 
that may have gone up over the years that may have gone down i don't know you know because they don't publish it this is the last that i know of but their mm-hmm. but their uh, outcomes for new posts i.e replacement posts is something like five years uh, and that may be due to you know i i would you could speculate that that's likely to be due to thinness of the dentine wall subsequent to repreparation or indeed maybe root canal retreatment you know we have this sort of movement now endodontic movement with regards to minimal access cavities or ninja access cavities or, you know mm-hmm. it's, it's it's quite it's amazing to see uh, but one of the things that we may not appreciate despite being able to root canal treat an mb3 through you know a pinhole is that you maintain mm-hmm. as you said you maintain that dentine thickness and that builds resilience in the tooth to manage occlusal loading uh, and indeed you know it makes the tooth more uh, uh, more able to manage or at least seal the tooth because your margin is going to be thicker i.e you know the, the distance that a bacteria or a bug needs to travel through that margin is going to be much longer to get mm-hmm. through the root canal system than indeed the apex so i think the thickness of the dentine is also very important as i said to you there is an overt uh, focus on the height of dentine outward of the other factors such as the thickness as well Cool. Thank you so much. So, cracked teeth. Uh, you have a uh, lower seven in a patient with the worn dentition, generally intact dentition, uh, minimally restored, good oral hygiene, uh, and you've been seeing this patient for a number of years, and you're starting to notice that this, the, the distal crack on that seven is starting to get stained. The tooth is asymptomatic. Th- these situations, I really don't know how to advise my patients because I've seen a few over time then they eventually develop symptoms and and others you know you can watch and nothing ever happens so i never really know whether to recommend some sort of maybe a gold uh minimal prep cuspal coverage like you know gold hat for these uh, sevens uh and it's something that i'm pretty sure you're going to say that there's no right or wrong answer is very difficult but any anything that you know, any opinion clinical opinion you'd like to give in these sort of scenarios so i mean it obviously it depends on the tooth and it depends on the situation uh, you know there has been there has been a lot of um, work on how to manage these sorts of situations. You know, one of my colleagues, Brian Miller, has looked at providing things like composite onlays, so that you know, up until that point, that crack has slowly, it would have slowly started to propagate. You know, the tipping point will be when one of the cusps undermines so much so that you have a catastrophic failure and the tooth becomes unrestorable. Mm-hmm. Now to explain that to a patient photography is a great you know if as you say you've seen the patient over maybe a three or four month period if you took a photograph at time zero and then took another photograph at three months or four months the ability to convince a patient to go through that process of saying actually you know what you have a crack here and i've been watching it carefully for yourself and it's now started to get stained i feel that we need to manage this to prevent this from propagating you're more likely to probably get acceptance of that than if you were just to say to the patient, I've noticed this, I think we need to put an onlay on there. Absolutely. And this is something I've, I've done very recently, actually, with, with a patient with an upper six, actually, that I, had, I, I noticed a crack and all my new patients will get a full series of photos at work. Uh, and I've now seen him for you know a couple of recalls, so four recalls now, two years uh, I saw him and in in the with these cracked teeth I like to only for people with cracked teeth I like to take subsequent uh, sort of follow-up photos because I've done no work on him everything's good I wouldn't take full occlusal series photos for, for, for everyone but for him I said okay you got a crack let's just compare and it's so useful to have two years worth of before and after photos of, of just normal uh, life and chewing without any dentary involvement because you actually see a little bit more wear here and there and you see uh, the, the, the crack a little bit wider perhaps a little bit stained uh, and i think that can be a, a real good tool in in, in general practice and any practice to, to sort of diagnose yourself and uh, and help in decision making i mean i think i mean looking at cracked teeth this is now a 21st century epidemic i think you know it is something that we're going to be managing more and more often and you know uh, you know, those MOD amalgams that went in maybe during the 80s and 90s during, you know, when, uh, you know, dentistry was more remunerated a lot better, uh, those sorts of teeth will come back and they will, they will present with issues. Again, you know, the common, other common situation is when you have somebody with an MOD amalgam and they want it replaced for composite for whatever reason and they come back with an issue after that, you know, pulpal sorts of issues. So I think... For patients, again, if we're thinking future thinking or future proofing, you the the constant factor that we can never really modify or really have any say in is whether or not maybe the patient will wear a stabilization splint 
or a soft bite guard at night to reduce the amount of non-axial loading on teeth because that's out of our control. You know, if, mm -hmm. if they're a restless sleeper, they might, they're, they're probably less likely to make, to wear the Michigan splint that we might prescribe to them. So if we have that constant parafunction, bruxism, working on teeth that have cracks in them, um, and it, it, it is a constant, and say, for example, that mother that you spoke about catastrophically fails and that tooth is extracted, the remaining 27 teeth or 26 teeth, the, the amount of force applied to those remaining teeth will be actually be greater per, uh, per percentage because the amount of prior function will remain fairly constant, but yep. there's less teeth to take that load. There's a whole, uh, yeah, a pair of teeth that have now lost in that equation. So, uh, you know, as a percentage, quite big. Exactly. Even though there's one tooth that's lost, especially if it's a seven or a six, if it's a molar, then that I think greatly affects the equation, doesn't it? Well, I think that would be the, the real uh, um, moment of realization for patients when that sort of explanation goes through and you say to them, actually, you know, you've lost the molar tooth, but you have a, a, another 26 teeth, bearing in mind that you have these wear facets on, you know, that are very generally uh, positioned, you know, other teeth that are now going to be at a greater risk. And at that point, you know, discussing maybe on laying other teeth strategically to protect them, you know, teeth, you know, six sevens, for example, may not be out, you know, maybe, maybe come across as quite sensible at that stage. Absolutely. And tre treatment planning wise, I think that's something, a philosophy I follow that sometimes if you are having that sit and wait uh, approach to the patient, but if something bad does happen, as long as the patient's been, you know, in with it the whole time, then I'm a bit more aggressive in my recommendations because I think that is what is actually best for the patient. If they're cracked a, a mm -hmm. virgin molar, then there are going to be cracks in other teeth to, to lesser degrees perhaps to, to reach that failure point and it's, at that point it's a good idea to then be more aggressive I think uh -huh. uh, and I think yeah I think that realisation is quite important for patients that they need to manage or act upon the cracking you know I mean I, we work in London patients are generally quite stressed uh, you know it's routine in my practice that we go through you know a visual analogue scale of stress for patients and, you know, when you ask the patient, are you stressed? And they say, yeah, I'm nine or 10. And you you want to translate that into what they present orally. You know, you were looking for facets, looking for cracks in those sorts of situations. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, as I say, you know, we're looking at restorability, but we're also looking at what the, the forces on the teeth are going to be. The, I mean, the forces are so important. I mean, and I'm a big fan of looking at that. So one thing I do for all my patients, and you know, please tell me what you think of this, is I, I feel the the masters and temporalis muscles, uh, and because that is a, I think that's really well correlated with uh, the patients who have meteor uh, or more hypertrophic master muscles and I grade them usually as mild, moderate or severe and it's, it's part of my custom screen and uh, software of excellence in the mm. software we use for note taking that every new patient will get their masters and temporalis assessed. I'm looking for tenderness but mostly I'm looking for the size of it and already for the patients who've got the biggest masters I'm already suspecting that there's a parafunctional habit and and but I'd say about 95% of the time I look in the mouth and it's a exact sort of a mirror of the size of masses. So those with larger masses, I am seeing where interdentine significant cracks and, and I'm noticing that uh, a, a lot more. Sometimes it's based on their occlusion as well. For example, if they have got an AOB and they're mostly uh, occluding posteriorly with the combined with the parafunction, then, or, or it could be, for example, their facial type, are they brachyfacial, stuff like that, deep bite. But um, that's something I assess and it, it's supposed to be a sort of correlated to their bite force as well, which obviously um, um, reads into what you've been describing now in terms of their stress levels and generally the forces they produce. I mean, I think, Again, I mean, going back to restorability, you know, the, the you know the, the tooth that is uh, heavily restored or indeed questionable restorability in a patient who is a parafunction patient versus a patient who's not a parafunction patient is quite essentially quite different. Also, you know, uh, the fact that the role that occlusion plays and maybe guidance as well, non-working side interferences, all of those factors play a role. And you know, just to say, in some of those indices, there's quite a few of them now. I'm not pointing in the direction everyone in particular. The occlusal factors probably don't are very difficult to factor in into that sort of situation. You know, for patients also, I mean, teeth evolved to meet or at least be in contact for 15 to 20 minutes a day during chewing cycles. Now, if you say to a patient that you are overloading the system, and as a result of that overloading of the system, your something has to give. It may be your TMJ, or it may be your uh, it may be your tooth that also 
increases the patient's perception of the issue, i.e. it's not the ownership of the problem isn't the dentist needs to put a crown on this tooth for me before it cracks. The ownership of the problem is now shared amongst yourself being uh, yourself being the dentist, the patient uh, as well, because they have to realize that, you know, we can't help uh, that those sorts of huge amount of forces that are put on teeth that are fairly um, minimally um, have minimal amount of tooth tissue remaining. But there we are. I mean, again, you know, we've come back, we've come back to occlusion again, because that's fairly important with restorability. I'm sorry we di- we've diverged. No, and this is this is important because the crux of uh, predictability uh, is, is occlusion. And I think that last minute of what you said is going to be my main snippet, my intro snippet, my promotional snippet for this podcast because I think that's exactly why I say to my patients, you know, how many minutes a day in, you know, normally they should be together and I love giving that information to my patients because they really think, "Oh, I didn't know that." And it has helped a lot of my patients over the years when they feed back to me, like, "You know what, Jazz, you told me that and I've been and you're right, I have been pressing my teeth in these scenarios and whatnot. And these are the mm. patients who you have more cracks, you, you have more large restorations and you have more crowns because their forces and what they're doing with their teeth is just uh, much more. So I think what you said there was absolutely golden in terms of uh, v- value that the listeners will get from this. So uh, I'm conscious of time. So I just want to uh, um, ask you, I know there's only so much we can cover. What are your main yeah. pearls that you think would benefit listeners in, in the overall you know, umbrella term of restorability? Or it could be a certain aspect of restorability that you would like um, GDPs uh, to, to be looking into more when making those decisions. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to uh, mention out there? So, I mean, again, I mean, it goes back to the amount of coronal tooth tissue remaining but there's dentine, or at least the amount of coronal dentine remaining, but also the adhesive, the adhesive status of the tooth. Um, you know, it's it's weird how you know because of the the movement that we have in the UK with regards to managing the tooth surface loss, that we have this enamel ring around an upper anterior, and we bond to it, where it has no resistance or retention form. We're essentially adhe- relying on our adhesive component entirely. But as soon as we look at a molar, it doesn't. We don't seem to correlate that sort of same situation. Um, I think, you know, what Mm. is important is that we have to max out on every stage and minimize, you know, any uh, thing that may compromise each stage. So, for example, um, if we were looking at, you know, if we're we're going to restore something adhesively, then, you know, we need to just look at maybe utilizing rubber dam because if we get saliva contamination and we're doing an an onlay that may be bonded on with Panalia or something such as Nexus, um, we don't want to compromise that sort of situation, and we need to we need to observe every stage and know and and realize that we have to ensure uh, you know the, the most optimal uh, situation with these teeth that have got questionable restorability. You know, if we've got a coronal restoration or if we've got uh, you know an access cavity that is bounded by tooth tissue, that's not a situation that we will sweat over. It's those as we as we said earlier, so where we have tooth tissue or we have a deep margin distally, um, mm. and you know, we want to get a good margin as best as we can in the deepest portion. I think the other factor is, is that, you know, if we get, if we nail that distal margin uh, and we get a good seating of our restoration on that distal margin, because it's so deep, you know, you could, you know, if we're thinking devil's advocate, we could say that that margin isn't cleansable for the patient and it's likely to develop decay in the future. Then me and Oz uh, go on to discuss uh, the partial exodontia technique, which apparently was um, a technique founded by a chap called, Italian chap called Dr. Paolo Guazzi. I'm probably uh, bastardizing that word, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's called a partial exodontia technique. It's pretty cool. You sort of uh, extrude the tooth and you uh, make a tooth that was otherwise borderline or unrestorable to a restorable one. And that's what we're going to discuss now. You know, I read something quite recently from, I think it's someone in Italy, where instead of maybe orthodontic extrusion, which may last quite a while and may be quite difficult to achieve aesthetically anyway, anteriorly, they were doing mm-hmm. uh, extractions of the root and then repositioning um, with a yeah. splint, you know, sort of like a trauma splint, but they were purposefully extracting the root and, you know, creating a, 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 an environment for it it's to heal past, Partial extraction therapy, right? Partial, no, so... Partial extraction therapy, correct me if I'm wrong, is when you have when you have the remaining root buckled to an implant. This is purposeful extrusion of the tooth through a forceps 
and then creating yeah. a new uh, amount of feral extracoronally. Yeah, I think there might be a, a, a couple of links. But certainly I went to a lecture at the at the Bard, I think it was about just one and a half years ago, uh, and a chap who had some uh, sort of, uh, he's been doing it for 14 years, whatever. He, had, he showed lots of great cases of doing it. So essentially for those who are unfamiliar with this is you're using you know, forceps or uh, a luxator as he described, but you always have to warn the patient that actually if the, if the bit I'm luxating breaks and that's game over so it just come in to, to the, uh, the patient to come in with the mentality that this might not work and you only do it in patients you trust and in the right uh, sort of scenario pre-molars for example and it, yeah like you said you're just sort of uh, luxating the two sides about to come out by a couple of millimeters but you obviously then you suture it in a, in a tight way and you splint it so that um, the alveolar bone will regenerate then about I think it was about two weeks later he would um, root fill that tooth uh, and then you have instant ferrule, basically. So that's what you're referring to, right? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, again, uh, like I said, like we said earlier, I mean, uh, we're looking at innovative ways to keep teeth going. Um, and you know, who would have? I would. I would have laughed if you'd have told me 20 years ago uh, that someone had, you know, so now someone had thought up of purposeful extraction or luxation to gain yep. ferrule. Um, uh, and you know it's, it's it's got traction, which it has. You know people are talking about it. Whether or not people are doing it routinely mm. or not, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't know anyone who in the UK is doing it routinely. And if you are, if you listen to this, reach out. Let let us know. Uh, share, share, share your cases. It'd be good to to learn for everyone. Uh, but certainly, I know. Uh, yeah, it was an Italian man that actually presented at Bard. I, I do forget his name. Uh, but yeah, I, I think in Europe it might be more popular. Mm. So then our discussion turned back to implants. Back, you know, going back full circle with implants and their issues, you know, implant that was placed 20, 30 years ago, just with growth and aging. Another Bard lecture I'd went to, and again, I forget, I don't know his name, I'll probably reference it later, but he showed all these follow-up cases of implants where the the screw threads or the implant threads were exposed, not because of poor technique of placement, because these were placed by top dogs in implantology at the time, but actually growth and the forward and downward growth of certain types of long-faced females or whatever, uh, and how they grow and how they end up, their implants uh, end up looking quite ugly over time. Uh, and, and that's a, a huge uh, ticking time bomb as well, I think, for the future. I think, you know, time is the test, really, for any restoration. And I think, you know, implants are placed quite early as well in patients. You know, maxillary growth in adults, in adult males, continues until the late 20s. So, you know, as I say, there are cases that have come back where, uh, you know, teeth may have been extracted um, and a patient may have been referred in and the situation is such that the implant is an ankylosed unit and it has not migrated with the with the other teeth either side um and it is essentially you know the incisal edges is quite far uh cervically when compared to the adjacent teeth uh, with regards to the situation with exposed threads and all that all that other aspect of things i think um you know the the change in implantology is realizing that once you've removed the root uh that you lose the bundle bone and you're at a great you're obviously at a greater risk of uh, bone resorption yeah. from the buckle especially aspect. for anterior teeth which got you know very paper thin bone yeah paper thin bone or even you know you know if you've got uh, you, know, you know somebody who has uh, you know a very thin biotype you know in those sorts of situations mm. you may think twice about extracting a tooth and providing an implant when maybe uh, if we think also more more globally i mean post-core restorations uh or you know innovative ways in restoring teeth you know we've been we've been doing that is part of dentistry that's been done in dentistry for hundreds of years or at least 100 years anyway if we compare that mm -hmm. to you know the genesis of implantology which really has really really taken taken uh traction over the last 25 years or so when you compare that difference in experience, knowledge, and research, you know, teeth again are superior in that respect because there's more, uh, there's been more done on teeth, there's been more research on teeth in those sorts of situations. You know, a compromised tooth yeah. versus a compromised implant in someone, you know, in a loved one's mouth, what one would you choose to have to treat for them? I would take a compromised, you would take oh, a compromised absolutely. tooth. So, Again, that sort of paradigm, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of, not paradigm, but the, the association between teeth and implants, again, I think it's swung back towards the tooth, even if it's, you know, heavily restored, even if it's lacking tooth tissue. I think that's the way things will go. 
Brilliant. Well, also, I'm, I'm uh, mindful of the time. Uh, literally, it's a topic that you can literally talk about for, for hours and end because uh, I'm just looking, reading through the list, you know. You said implant restorability, interface, perio factors, endo, structural, occlusal, aesthetic, patient litigation, and obviously future development. So literally, this, this episode could have gone in any direction. I'm glad it went in the direction that it did in because we talked a little bit about occlusion, innovative methods. Uh, so it's good to, 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 to bring that all in together. We talked about ferial. So uh, thank you so, so much for that. Um, I want to know a bit more about, I think you're doing an occlusion symposium in September. Uh, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put the link out for everyone. Can you just, yeah, please tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, you know, I we decided to do the symposium. I think you know, lecture days were quite common a long time ago, and you know, lots of hands hands-on courses have become you know the norm now. But you know, this is a traditional lecture day with I would like to think some four very good high-quality speakers. We've got Tisk Qureshi talking about GDP orthodontics and things like Dahl. Uh, we've got Sanj Banderi coming down from Manchester talking about cracked teeth and managing that endo-restorative interface and occlusion and how to manage teeth and how occlusal loading on endodontically treated teeth or indeed vital teeth affects things. I'm talking about occlusion, past, present and future. And we've got Mayhul, who's, uh, Mayhul Patel, who's also going to be talking about controlling occlusion, you know, those certain aspects of maybe the crown provision process where, you know, you may look at a tooth after, you know, you may have tried to restore a tooth with a crown and those little aspects of lack of control of the occlusion can result in you know, maybe, uh, you know, the, the crown not fitting appropriately or indeed the occlusion on the crown not being as ideal as, as it can be. So, you know, it's at the BDA, it's 150 pounds and it attracts about six hours of CPD. That, that's a, firstly, that's a bargain. Secondly, uh, really like those people that you've got on board. Uh, Tiff Qureshi, you know, he taught me dial technique. I actually went to listen to Tiff Qureshi in Sydney because I'm such a geek that when I was in Sydney at the time, so, I mean, it's a it's a it's a, it's a long way because he lives in South London. But anyway, I know, I know, right? No, I was I was on I was on a different course and I was on my jollies and I was there. I was like, oh my god, Tiff is coming! And then my wife very kindly let me go because uh, I thought, okay, I might not get time to see him in London because uh, just the way life is. Yes. I ended up seeing him in Sydney and uh, his fantastic auto restorative course over two days, talking a lot about dial. And I was much more confident, uh, you know, using the dial technique uh, after that. So that you know, it's great that he's good talking about that. Uh, Mahal's lecture sounds really clinical, clin- clinically applicable as well as yours uh-huh. so it sounds like a very um, good day to take away a lot of nuggets so uh, I'll be sure to if it's okay with you put the link at the end of my podcast so people can uh, s- you know, look into that bargain of a day so um, brilliant uh, any last words anything you'd like to say I'm looking forward to subscribing and listening to the future podcasts in the future brilliant thank you so much Oz I really appreciate that